Hello, listeners. Before we begin, a few brief introductory notes. First of all, we had some issues with the audio for this episode while editing, so the quality's a bit off from our usual. Hopefully it won't be too bothersome, and we apologize in advance for sounding like we recorded in a fishbowl. Second, a quick note on content. This episode is on a piece of media that is intended for children, and in response to that, we did our best to keep this episode PG in hopes that middle and high school age students might be able to enjoy it as well. That said, there may be a few instances of mild profanity that we didn't catch, and there's also a general warning for non-explicit discussion of sexual assault and domestic abuse, typical of what happens in the text of Percy Jackson, so parent or teacher discretion is advised. And now, here we go! listeners, and welcome to Classically Trained, a podcast where we talk about modern media that does its very best to depict the ancient Mediterranean world, its peoples, and its stories. I'm Julia, your resident Greek literature person, linguist, sort of, etc. And I'm Allison, uh, your resident Roman archaeologist slash late antique person, human. (laughs) And this week we are talking about uh, the first book in the Percy Jackson and the Olympian series by Rick Reardon, The Lightning Thief. We're very excited. Yes, we are very excited. Um, so we're finally talking about something we don't <laughs> desperately hate. Yeah. So for anybody who's been listening to this podcast since the beginning, this is our fifth episode and our first one on something that that is like... Well, it's not Troy Fall of a City. Yeah. But before we get too far ahead of us, uh, why don't I start with a recap and then we'll do Did We Like It? And yep. we can go on from Sounds there. Sounds good. So, Percy Jackson is a 2005 middle grade novel by, as mentioned, Rick Riordan, which tells the story of 12-year-old, 12-year-old? 11-year-old. 11-year-old Percy Jackson, <laughs> a New York uh, native kid who is um, quite bullied in school, etc., and discovers that many of his difficulties stem from the fact that he is the demigod child of Poseidon. He's plunged precipitously into the world of mythical monsters and gods and all sorts of dangers, and with his new friends, Grover and Annabeth must undertake a quest to retrieve the stolen lightning bolt, thunderbolt, what's it called? I, either. <laughs> lightning bolt of Zeus, uh, which has apparently gone missing and trouble is brewing between Zeus and Poseidon. I don't, I think that's fine as yeah. far as the basic plot. This book has a very straightforward plot. Percy finds out that he's a demigod. He goes, he finds out that there's problems between his dad and his uncle. He goes on a quest to find the lightning bolt. Stuff happens. Mm-hmm. He succeeds. Yay. It's a kid's book. <laughs> the plot is straightforward. <laughs> and what a relief that is. So, which, speaking of, um, Allison, did you like this book? I deeply love this book. So, yes, yes, I did. As I'm sure you can tell, this is not the first time I've read it, so. <laughs> yeah, this isn't the first time I've read it either. I, I quite like these books. I, I like all of the Percy Jackson books. But this The Lightning Thief is just, like, charming. It's a fun read. It's a good introduction. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I, I think so. I first found The Lightning Thief 
in my school library when I was maybe in grade four. I was pretty young and I I found this book because I was looking through the, the library shelves as I did as a very young child looking for something to read and I happened to come across this book. And this was when I think only two of the books were out because I remember getting the third one because I got it in hardback. And so it wasn't yeah, it definitely wasn't super popular at this point. I remember I remember we had like a reading contest at our school and like the two of the books were that it were that were in the lineup were Percy Jackson and Aragon and Aragon won and I was mad about it. Oh, see, I like I I would have had the exact opposite experience of that, which is that when I was around that age, I was obsessed with Aragon. Mm, yeah, cuz I think it, that was the point when Aragon was the big thing and this hadn't quite become as as much of a thing yet. And yeah, I first picked it up because I was always like, I was into mythology when I was a little kid. My uh, grandparents, I think, gift me, gifted me Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths, which is like a really well-known illustrated I like, grew up children's with, book. I grew up with Dallaire's as well. Oh, Actually, nice. my okay. mom read Dallaire's as a child, and she oh. has this really ancient beat-up copy that she read to me. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. I My Dallaire's book, to, to say how much it was read... It literally split in half. Yeah, ours was falling apart. <laughs> and too. I took it to my school librarian. My school librarian's like, you know, I w- wouldn't normally do this, but like, I was very close with my school librarian, so she like taped it up for me, and I still have it. So yeah, this was definitely like in my wheelhouse, and I was very excited to find this book, and it like very quickly became one of my favorite books. Yeah, it's interesting. I have like a vague memory of having a first encounter with Percy Jackson around that same age. I think I had a friend who had read them and I read I feel like I don't even think I read all of one of it may not even have been the lightning thief it might have been a later one in the series but I read part of one of them like at her house at a sleepover or something and I too was obsessed with Greek mythology as a child so it was like interesting to me on that but they didn't hook me at the time and so I didn't end up reading them until much later So I read the Percy Jackson books for the first time when I was in high school. I want to say I was either in grade 11 or maybe even in grade 12. Oh, okay. Yeah. um, My friend Maddie, who is a big aficionado of this series, bullied me into reading them. (laughs) It was definitely, I have this really vivid sense memory of like binge reading most of them. I think I actually read most of them as ebooks. I wanted to read them all as quickly as possible, and that was the easiest way for me to get my hands on all of them. And so by that point, by the time I read them, I think either the final book in Heroes of Olympus, which is the follow-up um, quintet, like, series oh, of five yeah. books, it had either just come out or was just about to come out. And one of the things that... We can talk about this a little bit, but one of the things that finally sold me on reading the series is that we get the introduction of a canonically queer character in the second series. And as, like, a young bisexual who was figuring out my own stuff, knowing that there would be some, like, queer representation was really important to me. And so that was one of the things that convinced me to read them finally was hearing about that. So I went back and I read Percy Jackson and the Olympians. And then I read almost all of, or possibly even all of Heroes of Olympus in one go. Mm, Okay. So to be clear, rereading The Lightning Thief this time, this was only the second time I've ever read The Lightning Thief. And I haven't read it in almost 10 years And I remember almost nothing. (laughs) 
and I re- and I read them all so fast that like I've definitely just the memories of stuff that happens in Percy Jackson has all blurred together in my head. Mm, so okay. I am working off a very loose pre-knowledge of this series. Allison is working off a significantly more thorough pre-knowledge of the series. Yeah, I feel like we might want to put a picture in show notes of my copy of Percy Jackson. It is a, it's been through it. Yeah, we'll tweet a photo. I've definitely, yeah, I like don't even know how many times I've read this book. I have no idea. I know it basically all from memory. Yeah, nothing, I, yeah, it's one of those things that, you just is just stuck in your head permanently because you've read it so many times as a kid. So see, that's how I am about Aragon, which I definitely read like six or seven times. Oh man, yeah. I would like to state for the record that I think this is a better written book than Aragon. I mean, yeah, because Christopher <laughs> Paolini was sixteen when he wrote Aragon. Yeah. Suffice to say, both of us like this book a lot. Both of us have some history with it, but like different amounts. Okay, I'm gonna talk about the history. Percy Jackson now. Yeah. Um, G- give us a lesson. Okay, I'm gonna, um, yeah, I'm gonna do a little, little history lesson now. Just go into the how Percy Jackson came about um, because I think it is really telling for a lot of the stuff in the way that the book is written. Sorry, right. we just, before we delve into the history of Percy Jackson here, for transparency's sake, we just double-checked the pronunciation of Rick Riordan's name because I think both of us have been pronouncing it differently and it is a courtesy to pronounce the man's name right if we are going to talk about <laughs> yeah. his book. Mm-hmm. So his name is pronounced Rick Reardon, according to Google. Yes. And sir, if you happen to listen to this podcast and we are still pronouncing it wrong, it's Google's fault, not ours. <laughs> yeah, so um, to delve into the history of Percy Jackson, which is kind of important for the like context of the book, like, a lot of the stuff in the book makes a lot of sense when you know a little bit about how the, the book came about. But Rick Reardon was originally a, like an adult mystery author. He had, yeah, he, he published mystery books and he was also a middle grade teacher. So he was doing something like he published, like he was publishing like alongside his like day job as a, as a teacher. Yeah. Because he just don't get paid enough. T- teachers and authors are both chronically underpaid. I would say, I'll, I'll say teachers and teachers are chronically underpaid in the states. It's better here in Canada, but in the states, yeah, it's pretty bad. And so the Percy Jackson came about because his son wanted to hear about Greek, Greek myths as a bedtime story, um, and eventually he ran out of Greek myths to tell. So his son was like, "Can you make something up?" And Rick Riordan had actually been teaching myth to his middle grade students, and so he had a he had an assignment. It turns up turns out where he got them to like invent a demigod and like a quest for them to go on which is such a cool middle grade assignment like that's that's such a great idea but yeah so he decided to like do that for his son um and his son actually so the percy in the book has adhd and dyslexia and his son was in the process of getting diagnosed with adhd and dyslexia so he made up a main character who had both of these characteristics and his son was like that was fun you should write it into a book Um, Which is funny because I think his son was like, I don't know, maybe seven or six at the time. (laughs) But yeah, he wrote it up. He said he had like a really good time writing it. Like he he said like it almost like wrote itself. Um, I think he also said this about the first like mystery novel he had published that it just sort of wrote itself. It, It just seemed like something that he needed to write. And then he actually test drove the novel with some of his his middle school students, which I think is really cool. And they helped him, I think, with like choosing the name and also 
helping talk about like some of the characteristics of ADHD. So like making sure that like Percy was behaving in a way that like make, made sense for somebody with ADHD. So I thought that was really cool. And it just knowing all of this just makes me love Rick Reardon even more because yeah, it's just an adorable story. It um, is. It is an adorable story. It's very, not to like invoke Tolkien, but it's very Tolkien because that's how the Hobbit got written. Oh yeah. Is the Hobbit true. was a story that he told to his kid. Which is why The Hobbit is a better narrative than The Lord of the Rings. Like, The Lord of the Rings is a great epic, but, like, The Hobbit is just, like, a good story well told, and it's fun to read. Yeah. And so I... There are some genre things and structural things about this book that I think it has in common with The Hobbit that have to do, I feel, with this sort of, like, a story is being told like origin in some ways that that, Mm, like to some degree, this is just like a genre thing, but there's some similarities that I think are worth pointing out that make it what it is as a reading experience. Okay. Yeah. Pop off. Go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, the big thing is that it's a straightforward and compelling narrative, but there's kind of two things. First of all, it, it takes some setup because we need to be introduced to a world and to a main character quite thoroughly before we can, like, get anywhere, because that's just how these narratives work. You need to yeah. know and... and You need to know the main, the protagonist quite well before you can really get into it. Um, and then the second thing is, once the story does really get moving, it moves quite quickly, but it moves quickly through a series of episodes. Yes. So this novel... In each chapter, there is kind of an encounter of some kind until we get to the very end. So, you know, we get the Furies on the bus. We get the Echidna in the in St. Louis. We get the Lotus Hotel. We get Medusa. Mm-hmm. We get these, like, individual episodes that each represent, like, a step on the journey. But, of course... In a more adult, slightly, even a slightly more adult novel, it would be like, they are just traveling for long stretches. And maybe what's happening during that traveling is people are like having conversations and there are emotional beats that Mm -hmm. aren't tied to like an action beat. But because this is a story for children, stuff has to be happening or your reader is going to lose interest. Not to say that there aren't still emotional and relationship beats, like, you know, the water park and so on. There's definitely these, like, important yeah. character and relationship beats that are happening because of these these episodic, like, mini-adventures within the larger quest. But as an adult reader, you don't need it to keep your interest. And coming back to it, reading it this time, I was kind of thinking to myself, like, more stuff than necessary happens in this novel. As a kid, I was, would have been really happy for this amount of stuff to be happening in the novel. But as an adult, I'm like, this is so many new conflict and then rapid resolution and then move on to the next thing. Like, that it gets a little bit like we could have had two fewer episodes. And I, I as an adult reader, would have been fine with that. Not to say that this is not a fun and enjoyable book to read as an adult. It's just like... It's a thing about reading a book that is really meant for telling to children. Yeah. And particularly telling to children in a, like, we're going to read a chapter or two before bed kind of situation. Like, that's, this genre does that really, really well. 
it's just not the same kind of reading experience that you expect as an adult and even potentially enjoy. I love reading children's literature because I am simply here to have fun, but not every adult reader is going to like enjoy that and might get kind of bogged down in being like, so why are we having another side quest (laughs) instead of just advancing the plot? Yeah. And you can see, yeah, the fact that he was a teacher for years, like it really comes through that he really understands how to like speak to kids of a certain age, uh, how to write for kids of a certain age. And about um, kids that age. Yeah. Like, he knows kids that age. Yeah. I think this comes through, and one of the strengths of this book, I really think, is that the emotional beats are really great, and they're also really, like, relevant to kids. There's, like, one of the sort of main emotional things are, like, the kids' feelings towards their parents, which I think a lot of sort of fantasy books for children, um, or especially for, like, slightly older children kind of miss out. Like, they don't talk a lot necessarily about relationships between parents and kids because they're like, we need to get the parents out of the way so the kids yeah. can have an adventure. See, this is the thing is, like, once you get out of... So this is this is in some ways the difference between middle grade mm-hmm. and YA, where you're starting to get coming-of-age narratives, which require a certain amount of independence on the part of the children and emotional independence as well as physical independence. Percy has a lot of physical independence in this story. He goes in this quest mm-hmm. more or less by himself without, or certainly without any adults. But Percy is still quite emotionally dependent on his mother and even on his father during the course of this story. And those relationships are still really important to him because this is not a coming-of-age story. Other books in the series might become coming-of-age stories as Percy gets older, but certainly in this book, he is still a kid, and he is not yet negotiating his own, like, identity as an adult who is independent of his parents. Yeah, and I think this sort of, like, central emotional conflict around, like, feelings around your parents is done really well, and is, like, very relatable to kids because it deals with stuff like divorce and feeling abandoned by your parental figure and that's something that like you know especially in the early 2000s like a lot of kids were sort of having to navigate emotionally and so I think that's yeah that's it's really executed quite well in this story and you do get these really nice emotional moments where especially Percy and Annabeth are talking about their relationships with their parents and how they have like very different complex relationships with their parents Yeah, because, I mean, for anybody who hasn't read this book, you should if you haven't, Percy has a very close relationship with his mother, who is his mortal parent, but he hasn't really, she's married to, like, a crappy dude who, it's revealed, like, is quite abusive. Annabeth has basically no relationship, at least in this book, with her mortal father. Her mother is Athena, and her father is quite distant and... He's a professor and he he kind of neglected her as a kid and he, her stepmother is mean to her and stuff. So both of them have somewhat fraught relationships with their parents, but it's it's this difference between like Percy with his really good relationship with his mother and this kind of resentment towards his godly parent for ditching them versus Annabeth who discovering that she was a demigod and coming to Camp Half-Blood was, like, discovering her home. And so she, like, has a lot more kinship, I think, with her godly parent and a much more fraught relationship with 
her mortal parent. And that contrast and and the the understanding that like not everyone has a parent or two parents who raised them that were good to them, that's like quite a difficult and complicated thing to explain to kids, particularly to kids who do come from good homes and wouldn't like have any basis to understand this, but the book handles it really well. Yeah. And I think also too, the book really also like deals nicely with the complexities of like being a kid who is poor. Yeah. Um, like yeah. Percy is his his mom has basically had a really shitty life and has because of things circumstances that were out of her control is not in a super great financial situation and then he's also at all of these schools where all the other kids are like really wealthy and so it's definitely indicated how he's having to navigate his financial situation as a child Um, and yeah definitely has a lot of like empathy for that and understanding about that is really lovely yeah so what else do we have that we want to talk about I mean, maybe we should talk about the elephant in the room. Well, no, I want to talk about adaptation before we talk about the elephant in the room. Okay, okay. So I, another thing that I really liked about this book and what really came through to me reading it as an adult and as somebody who has just been through several classics degrees is that this works super well as an adaptation. It's done very, very well, very thoughtfully. You can tell that Rick Riordan knows what's really interesting about the original material and incorporates it and portrays it in a way that is interesting for children. I think the thing that stands out to me the most is that he really captures the fact that the gods are incredibly petty and incredibly powerful and that humans are essentially their playthings. <laughs> yeah, and that and that they will just go about doing whatever they want. Yeah. Regardless of the effect that it has on human beings. Yeah. I think there's this this interesting passage about when Percy first, meet, first meets Dionysus. And Percy's like, this guy's a god? Like, he's this, like, sniveling, annoyed, kind of, you know, he not super, like, nice-looking guy. And then I think at one point, Dionysus turns towards him and Percy and, like, gives him this look. And Percy's like, oh, this guy could, like turn me into a dolphin and kill me if he wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, that it's it's not just that they're really powerful or just that they're, like, really petty and, and terrible, but that both of those things are true at the same time. You get it later with Ares, too, when Ares, like, Ares has all of this power. He could just smash Percy and Annabeth and Grover in, a fir- in like, a second, and all he does with that power is intimidate them into going and retrieving his shield because he doesn't want to get humiliated. It's just to avoid embarrassment. And, like, you have all the power in the world and you use it to avoid being embarrassed. You use it to <laughs> manipulate kids into, like, small children into running a stupid errand for you so that you don't look bad on TV. Like, what kind of petty bullcrap is that i just it's it's infuriating but it's so it's the exact kind of infuriating that the gods are if you read like a greek tragedy yeah yeah and i what's also interesting about that particular episode is that there's a point where like when they're in the water park like trying to get the shield they realize that they're on tv and percy says something about him 
realizing that he is a source of entertainment for the gods, that really pisses yeah. him off. Yeah. He's like, this is not, this isn't cool. Like, I'm a person and you're using me as a source of entertainment. And he's like very, he becomes very aware of that fact. Percy becomes increasingly disillusioned with the idea that the gods, like, are anything really to be admired over the course of the book. And it's quite, it's quite good. The other thing that this book does as, like, an adaptation is it does a really good job with just, like, the details. Like, Reardon really, you know, he knows the stories well, and he just incorporates the little stuff here and there in interesting ways that, like, enhance the situation. Like, the ones that I noted were Percy being able to talk to the zebra (laughs) because Poseidon is the lord of horses. Like, this- it's just, like, a fun Easter egg, basically, and- but it- it really, like, enhances the situation, and it's using the material in, like, an interesting and funny way, and then the other one is Annabeth's arachnophobia, because, like, Athena cursed Arachne over something petty, and so now the children of Arachne have been after the children of Athena, like, forever and ever and ever, (laughs) and- and all the children of Athena, like, hate spiders, or at least Annabeth, as a child of Athena, hates spiders because they, like, chase her around or whatever. It's just, like, a cute, fun use of a small detail from mythology to create a character trait that deepens these characters. Yeah. And I think also, the other thing about these books is that, I mean, I don't know if this is just my, like, nostalgia, but I read this and these books are still funny. Yeah, they're still so funny. No, I laughed, for sure. the way that he sort of manages to portray the gods are really sort of, like, they're evocative of the original material, but they're also kind of funny and subversive. Like, there's, like, how the fates are portrayed. There's just these three women sitting across the street holding these giant socks, and they go snip in front of him, which is just, like, terrifying, but also very very funny. Yeah, well, so this is the thing that I think why it works so well as an adaptation is that the modern twists that he puts on the stuff is very funny. Like, they're often hilarious. They can be really relatable. Like, they're clear details from modern life that are clever and easy to understand and connect to. But then we get the flip side where we get to see that they are actually still these mythological beings with huge power. And the duality of those things can creates this like great kind of resonance. Like, like you said with the fates, that they are just three old ladies with giant socks. But the ominousness of the snipping of the thread is still there. And same thing like Charon, when they meet Charon oh, at yeah. the gates to the underworld, who is this like kind of foppish, like, annoyed concierge guy who wants a raise so that he can buy more fancy suits. And then they get into the elevator and they start descending down into the underworld and his face, like, bleeds away into a skull with, like, gaping chasms for eyes. And Percy is like, oh my god. (laughs) But he doesn't stop being that character. And the parallel but like those two things existing together on the flip side of each other is great 
it's what makes the Percy Jackson world building so good. Yeah. I think a really great example of this to me is Procrustes. Yeah. Uh, because he is, he is like, the sort of myth of Procrustes about this guy who, like, mistreats travelers. Like, uh, Riordan turns him into this really annoying salesman. Like, works so perfectly. It's such a great translation of the ancient material. Yeah. The waterbed salesman. (laughs) Yeah. It's a clever... That's And that's exactly what it is. It's a translation. It's a clever translation that works to be understandable to a modern audience. And even to a young modern audience who Mm -hmm. doesn't have a lot of, like, complex ideas available to them necessarily but it doesn't discount the original meaning and the complexity of of the original material either yeah Mm -hmm. there are still those layers and so that's quite that's quite good and it's an expansion of this thing that we were just talking about with the gods that they are both all powerful and super petty and that is something that is like an ethos of mythology that exists in the classical canon as well that it can be both true that these mythological beings are scary and powerful and that they are human on a certain level and relatable on a certain level like understandable to humans yeah they have human human motivation i think is like in some ways yeah and so Yeah, when you get it here, it's like there's that level of relatability with the modern twists, but also the, like, all-powerful unknowability of the, like, cool mythological side. Yes. Yes. Oh boy, okay, I think now maybe we have to move on to the to the elephant in the room. Yes, to the elephant in the room has started stomping. <laughs> we have to talk about it. So... This is, this is, I think, probably our only major issue with Percy Jackson. Yeah. With The Lightning Thief is Western civilization. (laughs) I'm going to say it that way every time that I mean it in the big sense that people say it. I think that it should be a law that anytime anybody has to say those words... Yeah. And even in an academic context, if you're at a conference, you have to say Western civilization every single time. Yeah. Um, It'll really cut down on the usage of those words, I think. Yeah. (laughs) So I'll mount my defense first, which is it was 2005 and Rick Reardon is a layman and he is writing for layman. Yes. I will also say, though, before we get into some of the issues, just broadly, it's not entirely uncritical of the concept. Uh, Yes. So, yeah. So here's the thing. The Lightning Thief presents Western civilization as this kind of spiritual almost concept of like society and, and, you know, and civilization that has existed, that began in antiquity, in classical antiquity, and has continued to the modern day. And the heart of Western civilization has moved from place to place as time has gone on and the kind of center of power has changed. And now it is in New York City, so Mount Olympus and the gods live at the top of the Empire State Building. And that their continued existence is what maintains the power of Western civilization as, like, a thing. It's 
quite kind of nebulous and abstract in certain ways in the way that it exists in the world building. But at the same time, it's very much at the core of like the conceit of the whole thing. Yes. Maybe I should read oh, yes, Maybe I, I should quote yeah, a little bit quote. from the book. So let's see. It's first introduced by in a conversation between Percy and Chiron, the centaur. I love centaurs. I, I love centaurs so much. Centaurs are great. And Chiron says to Percy, I'm reading from page 72 of the paperback edition. Come now, Percy, what you call Western civilization. Do you think it's just an abstract concept? No, it's a living force, a collective consciousness that has burned bright for thousands of years. The gods are part of it. You might even say they are the source of it, or at least they are tied so tightly to it that they couldn't possibly fade, not unless all of Western civilization was obliterated. The fire started in Greece. Then, as you well know, or as I hope you know since you passed my course, the heart of the fire moved to Rome, and so did the gods. Etc. And so, and he, he goes on to explain that the gods have moved, that the, the West, the heart of the West, and therefore the gods, have moved from Greece into Rome and then into Spain and Germany and on into England and now into America. And this is, shall we say, a problematic concept. <laughs> yeah, it's very deeply tied to colonialism. It is definitely a colonialist concept and a concept that was used to justify violence against non-white peoples, maybe most particularly people who weren't European um, and people who weren't British. Just both justifying conquest of, by Europeans of other places. There's this idea that Europe is technologically advanced and cultured and these other places are sort of backwaters and that it's actually good that the British are coming to conquer you because they're going to bring civilization to you. Yes, um, Western civilization. And that it is, yeah, that it is in some way superior. It's also problematic in that it ignores, it ignores that there was a great deal of civilization pre-Greece. Like yeah. a lot of Greek civilization is stuff that came out of Egypt and out of the Levant. Like, there's also a passage later on in the book where Percy is like, was there stuff before the gods? And I think Chiron again is like, before the gods, it was all savagery. Yeah. And it's like, that's just not true. Yeah. Well, I mean, so civilization existed before the Greek pantheon, and it is problematic to present it otherwise. Yes. And I also, I mean, my other sort of gripe with this as well, and I mean, you know, this is a gripe with the concept, not necessarily specific with Reardon, because the concept definitely places Greek, Greece as like the beginning of Western civilization. Even during the time period of classical Greece, Greece wasn't even like the only thing going on in the Mediterranean. Like, there were super powerful empires, especially over in the Near East, in sort of, like, the Mesopotamia, Levant region, um, which is what is now, like, modern-day, like, Iraq and Syria. I can't remember what was happening in Egypt during the period, but obviously Egypt was prior to, you know, many millennia prior to 
the development of like complex architecture in in Greece was building like these huge giant pyramids and stuff. Um, and and Greece also adopted a lot of architectural forms, art forms, even ways of writing language from people in the Levant and in the Near East. <laughs> so it's yeah, it just is completely historically inaccurate to present. Greece is the beginning of civilization because it's not. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, to be fair, again, this is a mythology of like, this is a, a theogony almost that he is presenting. Yes. In the sense that like, he's basically saying that prior to the gods, there were the time and like implicitly kind of other gods like didn't exist. So even if Greek it's hard to tell if he's saying that, like, Greek civilization... He's not really saying that Greek civil... In, in some ways, as far as, like, before the gods, it was all savagery. Well, like, the existence of the gods comes in with the birth of the universe, not just Greek civilization, yes, yeah. right? So there's this kind of layering of mythology and history that, unfortunately, it's it's hard to pick apart is the problem in the way that it's presented in the book. And this is a problematic understanding of of history and of what European culture has been and continues to be and the influence that it exerts on the world. Like, yes, there is a lineage of ideas in, quote unquote, the West, which is to say Europe and, you know, European influenced societies, including modern North America, but it is both disingenuous and very easily appropriated into white supremacy to say that, or to to even kind of gesture at the idea that these ideas are intrinsic to the West and didn't come from somewhere else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I think is interesting about this well is that even in this passage with Chiron, which is, you know, in a lot of ways deeply problematic, he does grasp how important the connection with ancient Greece is to sort of upholding this myth of Western civilization. Chiron says, look at your symbol, the Eagle of Zeus. Look at the statue of Prometheus in the Rockefeller Center, the Greek facades of your government buildings in Washington. I defy you to find any American city where the Olympians are not prominently displayed in multiple places. Yeah, we white people in North America are still upholding this as our history, the origin of our culture. And like, it's not, or not entirely, Yeah, but it is still deified. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah, I thought it was, yeah, really interesting that he did like, that that bit came out in the text. Um, I think though, there's definitely a theme throughout this book that he's not totally uncritical of this concept. There's a really interesting part, actually, when they're meeting up with Ares, where Ares says that he loves America after Percy's like, you can't just threaten people with a knife. And he's like, of course I can threaten people with knives. This is America. That's what I love about this place is I can just be super violent and people will do whatever I want, which is terrible. You know, did, like definitely not uncritical of America yeah. as a society. I think that what is missing is the slightly more open acknowledgement that Western civilization is constructed. Yes. Mm -hmm. That it is constructed by humans. Yeah. In it, because the gods actually exist in Percy Jackson, there has, there, there exists a certain assumption that like Western civilization is a real thing. 
in some yeah. way because it is what props up the gods and the gods prop up it. There is like mm-hmm. a fantasy world building aspect that makes it real in this world. But in the actual real world, Western civilization is a made up concept. Yeah. And I think there were, you know, ways to do this more critically. But yeah, again, it was 2005. Um, yeah. Not that that should sort of be like a broad excuse. Yeah. Um, but it definitely wasn't in, it wasn't in the cultural consciousness in the way that it is now. And also what I do really like about Rick Riordan is that he has really shown that he's willing to listen to people's criticism and change his material. And he's also provided platforms for other authors to like put their ideas in his world. He's definitely been a lot more inclusive with the types of characters he writes in recent years. So yeah, I think that that is one thing that I do really appreciate about him is that he's really willing to like change and is actively trying to write in a way that is inclusive. And I mean, you even see this in Percy Jackson, like he's, he, he talks about how he wrote this book because he had seen actually quite a few kids with ADHD and dyslexia aside from his own son and about how these kids often get, you know, pushed aside or seen as incapable or lazy when these kids are actually super capable and he's like yeah this is what percy discovers throughout this book that he is actually a capable person and so it seems like definitely a goal of his with his like writing for kids is to make kids feel good about themselves and so i think that really definitely fits in with him deciding to include more characters of color lgbtq characters on the, like, on-the-ground level and in the way that he deals with his characters, Rick Riordan is very good about representation and us talking about the fact that Western civilization as a concept is problematic, like, does not negate the fact that these books have done a lot of good and Rick Riordan is a good author who has good ideas about things. Like, he is not a jackass and this discussion should not be taken as, like, direct criticism of him. But it is a criticism of the concept and it's something that does need to be talked about because it does still get perpetuated in mainstream media and it needs to be challenged. Yes. And I think, too, when you're having kids read this book, it's something to talk about. Like if you're a teacher or you're a parent, like make sure to be like, hey, like talk to your kids about the concept of Western civilization, because, you know, if you don't, then they might come away with the idea that, like, Western civilization is a good thing. You know, that's a message that's getting reinforced. So whenever it comes up in media that they're reading, it's maybe good to, like, talk about it with, like, whatever kids you're dealing with who are, like, reading this media. Yeah. I do want to say, too, there is a part at the end of the book where we find out that Luke has been the enemy all along. Ooh, Um, spoilers. Yeah, and he, he says... Their precious Western civilization is a disease, Percy. It's killing the world. The only way to stop it is to burn it to the ground, start over with something more honest. And, like, is Luke wrong? No. Absolutely not. As someone who is very invested also in, like, the general, like, burn it to the ground ethos, as far as our whole field goes, actually, because... (laughs) Unfortunately, we are just full of racism as a field in classics. Yes. Yeah. Go off, Luke. Really just pop off. And Luke Luke has a right to be angry. Like, go ahead. Now, is siding with Cronus the right answer? No. No. Cronus 
sucks. This but. is the thing, and I mean, he, this is another thing that Reardon handles really well, is that, like, the fact that Luke has done bad things doesn't mean that everything that comes out of his mouth is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think also, like, Luke is actually a really great complex oh, villain. Oh, what a great character. Oh, oh. Like, I'm thinking about Luke in comparison to, like, the complex villain characters in Harry Potter. Luke's way better. Yeah. <laughs> Luke is way better. Yeah. Luke really, I think, yeah, like, and Luke, I mean, oh gosh, can I, can I signal a spoiler here? I'm going to signal a spoiler. Yeah. Um, Luke ends up getting redeemed and his redemption arc is done very well. And yeah, it, it really is this understanding that I think is sometimes missing in other children's media, like Harry Potter, that you actually have to like do stuff to redeem yourself. You can't yeah. just... Let's not talk about this in too much detail because we are planning to do yeah. episodes on other books in the series down the line. Yeah. And also I haven't read them in a really long time and like want to go in as unspoilered okay. as possible. Okay. I mean, I do vaguely know, but like, yeah. let's... I do want to just say one more thing though, sort of about the series in general, just because I think it's really like relevant to the concept of Western civilization that the series does actually sort of play with this theme of reformation versus like destruction when you're dealing with difficult systems. Because the book does really begin to grapple with the fact that the gods don't behave very well and haven't treated their kids very well. And there's actually problems in the way that the gods are dealing with stuff. And so, you know, we sort of have Percy on one side who's still siding with the gods, but is not stoked with them. And then Luke on the other, who is not siding with the gods and is more of the like burn it down mentality. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting. But yeah, we can definitely, you know, say more about that when we talk about the later books. Yeah. So I have one other more serious thing to talk about. And aside from that, I just have like small things. And so... My one more serious thing is I don't love the way the Lightning Thief deals with the Medusa story. Neither do I. I think this was something that we both really, like, noticed. Um, And I do want to point something out about this first, is that, so the Medusa story, as it is presented in this book, is the version where Medusa and Poseidon are caught in Athena's temple, and she is initially, like, a mortal woman who gets then turned into a monster, I looked this up. This is actually from Ovid's Metamorphoses. So it's very late. This is not something that's sort of part of the initial Greek canon. So it was definitely an interesting choice to include it. I think it's the more well-known version. Yeah. Yeah. But there's definitely versions of the story. There's definitely other versions where, you know, Medusa is just a monster as opposed to somebody who had been mortal. Here's my number one gripe. Medusa gets referred to repeatedly as Poseidon's girlfriend and her involvement with him is not consensual in the mythology. Yeah. So, um, and then she gets punished for her non-consensual involvement. Thanks, Ovid. So that's really problematic. And I mean, Reardon is sanitizing the story for a young audience and I can understand doing that. But he doesn't shy away from dealing with abuse in other circumstances. I mean, we get an explicit acknowledgement by Percy that Smelly Gabe hits his mother later on. Yeah. He could have made the decision to not have Medusa be Poseidon's girlfriend. He could have dealt with it differently. And I wish he had. I mean, I don't think beyond that, I don't think I have sweeping thoughts. I just wish that he'd done it differently. Yeah, because that's definitely a, a case where Medusa is 
you know, being portrayed as monstrous for having been assaulted. And then also the the anger and blame being between the two two female characters and Poseidon not getting any of the flack flack for that, despite yeah. the fact that it's it's mostly his fault. Yeah. Um, yeah. That well and and that in this version she's portrayed as monstrous for having sex. Yes. Rather than for being assaulted. Yes. Although, you know, it's not sort of because this is uh, middle grade fiction. I mean, yeah. It's She's, not, you know, they say they were caught in Poseidon's temple was what the, is how yeah. it gets phrased. But yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's a thing. And I mean, we'll talk about the, the choice to to sanitize or feminist eyes ancient mythology by taking a rape story and making it consensual when we deal with other media that do the Hades and Persephone story mm. because basically every modern Hades and Persephone story does that and I have opinions. <laughs> but we don't have to talk about that now. I bet you do have opinions. Alright, shall we get into our petty gripe section? I have one more. I actually have one more like slightly more substantial here's a thing I like before okay. we get into petty gripes. Which is that Shout out to Rick Reardon for not unnecessarily Christianizing the underworld. Yes. So the underworld is not an entirely pleasant place. And Hades, the vilification of Hades gets, I want to say, subverted. Either, well, kind of, sort of subverted, sort of lampshaded. I mean, I would- He is still a huge jerk, but he's not the only god who's a huge jerk. And- Ultimately, he is not the bad guy. You go through the whole story thinking, oh, Hades is the bad guy. He's the ba- he's the god of the dead. He's really scary and mean. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's the bad guy. And he is scary and mean, but he is not the villain of the story. And that's kind of nice because, like, Hades is not an evil god. He was scary. He's the god of the dead. But, yeah. And um, he's not the devil. No, he's not. And I think Reardon really undercuts this fear nicely when Hades starts going off about his logistical problems, which yeah. is very funny, but it's also very effective as, like, a storytelling device to say that he's not really that, Yeah, you know, he's not evil. The underworld is a bureaucracy, and Hades is very tired and mad about red tape. This isn't <laughs> the only version of Hades that has taken this tack on his character. Um, Hades 2018 by Supergiant Games, which we may talk about at some point, is a great video game and also does that kind of thing. And, like, it's just, it's a fun take on the underworld. It's more accurate to what the underworld is like in Greek mythology. And as I said, it just doesn't unnecessarily project Christian ideas about the afterlife onto the Greek underworld. Yes. Which is somebody who is Jewish and is on an internal lifelong crusade against Christian cultural hegemony. I appreciate. (laughs) I too am on a, a lifelong quest against Christian cultural hegemony. I am not religious. We'll leave it at that. But yeah, I sort of related to that. I also really like that he there's a there's a sort of part in the book where Percy is talking to Chiron about the gods. He's like, you mean God exists? And Chiron's like, we're not going to deal with that. That's a metaphysical question. That's not a yeah, that is not a question that we're going to deal with. Yeah, it's this thing where we're not going to we're not going to make comment on it either way, which I think is a really good way of dealing with that especially when you when you're writing a book 
for children and you don't want to like be rude or dismissive about their beliefs. Um, so yeah, that was another little thing that I really liked. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to like little tiny things. This is our petty gripes section. Yeah. Not all of mine are gripes. I have, like, a few thumbs ups and a few thumbs downs. Okay. I think I just have, like, one petty gripe, basically. Okay. Do you want me to do my, like, positive things yeah. first? Because I have Go a couple. For it. Um, This one's, like, neutral, but on page 107, Percy says that after, like, a couple weeks or whatever, a few days at Camp Half-Blood, he says, and I quote, I could stumble through a few lines of Homer without a headache. Man, I would kill for that superpower. Screw everything else about being a demigod. I want the ability to read ancient Greek. I So I would say that in the time I've spent reading Homer, it takes me like a month to be able to like read Homer without like dying. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is still with looking up a bunch of vocab. Yep. But like the, the, the Homer grammatically makes sense to me. It takes like a month. <laughs> which did which did make me, I, I will say, and it made me think to myself when I read that passage, I wonder if in this universe, the guy who decoded Linear B was a half, uh, half-blood. I think that's a good headcanon. I yeah. like it. I support yeah. it. The Oracle encounter pages like 139 to 141 absolutely slaps. Everything about the Oracle is cool. I love the way that they portrayed her. It's just neat. I, she's a creepy mummy in a 60s tie-dye dress. What is not to love about that? Yeah, Percy, like, goes up to the attic to talk to the creepy mummy, and she gives him a dope prophecy. Uh, yeah, I will say the prophecy is dope. Yeah. Works really well as a Greek prophecy. Does the whole, like, it doesn't mean when you think it means thing. The whole encounter with Cerberus makes me cry. I I love that encounter every single time I read it. Annabeth instantly bonding with this dog. Uh, shout out again to Hades2018, who gives you the ability to pet Cerberus. Ugh, <gasps> oh, would kill to Which pet automatically Cerberus. makes it the game of the year. All I care about is people being nice to this dog. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, okay, so, and jumping back a little bit, on page two, page, like, kind of 208, when Percy is talking with Echidna, the, like, mother of monsters, and he, she's like, I am Echidna, and he says, isn't that a kind of anteater? And she immediately goes on a rant about how she hates Australia. <laughs> it is the funniest thing that happens in that book. It's, that's pretty good. So that's, those are my, like, positive things that I picked out as I was going along this note just says, in all caps, I hate Australia, because that made me laugh. And I also had one quick question for you about uh-huh. a little small thing, which is, hellhounds? Question mark? Are they, like, a thing in Greek mythology that you're familiar with? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Huh. Yeah. It was one of the few things that I was like, I don't immediately recognize this as a mo- an a monster from Greek mythology. Yeah. You know what? That didn't come up for me, but I think it's just because I've read this book so much that I was like, of course there are hellhounds. So yeah, no, I yeah. don't know. That's like the one thing that I was like, this doesn't seem like it's from Greek mythology. Yeah, it may in fact not be. I mean, they're just like a nod to Cerberus, I guess, but. Yeah, I think that's where that's. Or there might from. be, there might be something that we just don't know about. Yes, that is also entirely possible. We don't know a lot of things. Yeah. Dear listener, if you are familiar with a hellhound in original Greek mythology in some source, 
hit us up on Twitter at ClassicallyPod. That would be, yeah, great to know. Okay. Petty gripe time. You go first. Okay, I have exactly one extremely petty gripe, which is that Rick Reardon does not know what an amphitheater is. (laughs) Allison, what is an amphitheater? An amphitheater. So picture the Coliseum in your mind. That is an amphitheater. It is circular or oval. Um, It has a bunch of seats and an area in the middle where, like, you, I don't know, like, you have gladiatorial fights. At one point, um, I think when... Rick Riordan is describing Olympus. He says there is an amphitheater and a coliseum. Oh no. And I think he meant, I think he meant the word theater. The word he was looking for was theater. A Greek theater is different from an amphitheater. The theater is a semicircle. It is usually meant for plays, but sometimes it's also used for stuff like gladiatorial fights. Um, or oratory. Oh, that's true. Oratory. Good point. And the... Another thing to point out is that amphitheaters, I looked this up because I really wanted to know, they don't show up until like the first century BCE and they largely show up in the Western half of the Roman Empire. So they're not Greek. Okay. Theaters are Greek. Anyway, that's my petty gripe because this also comes up like the word amphitheater comes up twice and it is evident to me that it is just not what he means. <laughs> so I just had to just had to get that out of my system. Fair enough. I have I have one less petty gripe and one extremely petty gripe. My less petty gripe is when Percy's still in the early chapters when he doesn't know who his godly parent is, there's just this default assumption that because his mortal parent is his mother, his godly parent must be one of the like default male gods. And frankly, I don't understand why his godly parent couldn't have been one of the goddesses in a male guise. That's a good point. But I don't think that's something that Reardon tackles in the first series, at least, and possibly even at all, and might be too advanced, like, trans stuff for 2005. Yes. Well, I... But... This is very heteronormative. Yeah. And it's very heteronormative and cisnormative, and I saw that and was like, I wish this were different. I don't see why it has to be this way. So that's my less petty gripe. And my extremely petty gripe is... I'm going to read Gonna read another passage. It's on page 236. In, in chapter 15, A God Buys Us Cheeseburgers. I love the chapter titles in this book. Oh, they're so good. They This is the chapter in which Percy and Annabeth get tricked into going to the water park. And they see a Greek letter Ada marked on some stuff and are like, what is this mark? This should be ringing a bell. And they figure out down the line that this is a trap set by Hephaestus to humiliate Ares and Aphrodite. And Annabeth exclaims, I'm so stupid. Ada is H. Uh. Dear Rick Reardon, Ada is not H. So I... I think so. Okay, so here's the thing: Ada physically resembles H. A capital Ada looks like an H. So first of all, if it's a capital Ada, they instantly should have been like, "It's an H," because it is just a capital H. But the Greek alphabet does not have an H. There is no letter H in the Greek alphabet. Greek has what are called breathings. So if a word in Greek, in classical Greek, I don't know about modern Greek. I'm sorry to anybody who speaks modern Greek. In classical Greek, 
If a word starts with a vowel or a diphthong, it will also have a breathing on it. A smooth breathing means that it is just like that word, but a rough breathing, such as in the name Hephaestus, it is like the first letter, which I believe is an Ada. Yes. And it'll have a little mark on it that tells you to pronounce it Hephaestus instead of Aphaestus. Yeah, so there's I, no letter H. I did look this up because basically, like, Rick Rick Riordan is not wrong here in that Ada is the first letter of Hephaestus' name, but it's not an H. It is a... It is an E. It, it is, is a, a long, long E. e. <laughs> <laughs> so, as a, like, a literature person who spends a lot of time looking at Greek letters... Yeah. That was my pity. I mean, it should have, it should also have the breathing mark on it, which like, for people who don't know, a breathing mark is, it looks sort of like an accent. It's a little thing you put on top of the letter. That yeah. Or kind of, if it's a capital letter, you kind of put it in front. Yeah. It looks like an apostrophe. Yeah. It's often, yeah, represented like an apostrophe. So, yeah. To be fair, depending on the kind of like hand that you're talking about and whether you're talking about like epigraphy or, Mm. or like on papyrus or what like if it's cursive or if it's carved into stone or what sometimes you just don't get them no you're totally right epigraphy stone epigraphy does not actually usually have breathing marks no so you're completely right or like really accents or anything yeah no they're just blocks of capital letters and then i die yes so if you would like to know what hell is like it is translating an inscription because there's Imagine somebody just wrote a sentence and they wrote it in all capital letters and they didn't put spaces between the words. Or any punctuation. Uh, yeah. And it's just a whole, it's just a whole paragraph of that. And you're expected to be able to read it when it's not even your first language. Yeah. So, so yeah. Anyway, so that is, that is all of the things I think that I have to say about this book. Oh. Yeah. It's a, it's a great book. We like it a lot. Yeah, we will we will do the other books in this series. Our plan is to kind of do them piecemeal. Like we'll we'll do some other stuff for a couple episodes now, and then we'll come back and we'll do the second one, Sea of Monsters. Yes, Sea of Monsters. Yes, Sea of Monsters. Oh. I think is actually even shorter than this. So yeah, it's really I'm fast. Impressed. And possibly we will have a guest because, as I mentioned earlier, my friend Maddie was the one who got me to do to read them in the first place in high school and she's still obsessed and I think she wants to come talk about this with us. So possibly look forward to us having a guest on this podcast at yes, some point. A, a guest who doesn't know about classical stuff and won't go off on a weird tangent. Yes. About- but who is obsessed with Percy Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave us a review. Next, some acknowledgements. We'd first like to thank Nicholas Judy and Dark Fantasy Studio, who produced our wonderful music. We would also like to thank the Society for Classical Studies for their help in supporting this podcast. Finally, if you feel motivated to help us out, you can always throw us a donation on coffee, linked on our Twitter. 
Our next episode in two weeks will be on the music of the mountain goats. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did. <laughs>